Terry Takewell, the construction worker, age 21, diabetic, uninsured. An ambulance took him to private hospital in Somerville, Tennessee. He was in an acute diabetic attack. He had no insurance. When the administrator found out he had no insurance, he picked him up and carried him out to the parking lot. Takewell made his way home somehow and died that night. The hospital was exonerated of wrongdoing with standard operating procedure. In Canada, they have a national health program that covers everyone. When you're in a hospital in Canada, the first question you are asked is what is wrong? In America, the first question must be what is your insurance? And that is not right. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. I think every single American has a right to affordable, accessible health care. Yes, the Affordable Care Act has made progress. A lot more people have insurance today than they used to. But 29 million Americans still have zero health insurance, and many of you are underinsured with high deductibles and high co-payments. In my view, we must move forward toward a Medicare for all single-payer program. With over 8.5 million cases and nearly 225,000 deaths, the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the cruel dysfunctionality of the US healthcare system. Even before the coronavirus hit, 87 million US citizens were either underinsured or had no health insurance whatsoever. 30,000 Americans lost their lives every year because they lacked access to a doctor. Whilst $11,000 are spent per person on maintaining the system of private insurance, more than half a million families declare bankruptcy each year due to medically related debt. So how did we get to this point? Why, in the richest country on the planet, is the healthcare system so woefully defective? I'm Freddie Stewart, the podcast producer for Our Economy. And in this fourth instalment of Our Voices special series on the US election, myself and North American editor Aaron White will take a deep dive into the history of American healthcare, exposing how this inefficient and ineffective system was first constructed, and placing the resurgent movement for Medicare for All in the context of decades of struggle, both for and against the implementation of universal healthcare as a human right. From 1876 until our day, the race problem in the United States of the Negro has been primarily a struggle to regain the right to vote in the midst of caste discrimination, changing slowly but definitely 
to a problem of the right to work and to be trained for work at all levels and to a struggle for broad civil and social rights. Most of you, I think, assume that this is still the Negro problem. But you must be warned that it is not wholly or mainly that now. That the reason that it is not is because of the fundamental changes now spreading over the whole world. Whereas in the 18th century the world thought that progress and emancipation were coming from popular education and universal suffrage, we know now that more fundamental than these important rights is the economic organization of the world. That is, the way in which the labor of human beings is organized to satisfy human needs. This question is so fundamental that all other questions of political power, of education and human happiness depend upon it. As described by the eminent historian and sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, the years following the Civil War were characterized by the radical reconstruction of the Union based on democratic principles and a fight for the economic freedom of former slaves. On March 3, 1865, in the dying months of the conflict and in the midst of a widespread outbreak of smallpox, President Abraham Lincoln ushered a bill through Congress to establish the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau. Among the rudiments of a welfare state established by this legislation was the Bureau's medical division, constructing 40 hospitals and employing just 120 physicians. This became the first federally run system of health care in the newly unified United States. In the decades that followed this period of Reconstruction, the former slave states of the Confederacy who had lost the Civil War came to wield enormous political power through a segregationist voting bloc within the Democratic Party. Democratic President Andrew Johnson repeatedly attempted to disband the Freedmen's Bureau on the ground that it violated the rights of former Confederate states. And in 1872, Congress finally responded to pressure from white Southerners and dismantled its institutions. In the years that followed, this so-called Dixiecrat bloc in Congress fought to reaffirm the nation's racial stratification by adding discriminatory black codes to federal laws and upholding the predominance of state rights over universal programs. As the progress of Reconstruction was rolled back, the U.S. entered a gilded age of industrialization, rampant with inequality and systemic racism. With only a few hospitals providing minimal therapeutic care and a system of unregulated physicians paid out of pocket, the rapidly expanding American economy entered the 20th century woefully unprepared for an epidemic of disease and a malaise of worker poverty. With populations growing rapidly, particularly in industrialized urban centers, workers and progressive activists began to push an array of new social reforms at the turn of the 20th century. Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party pushed universal health care from the political fringes, and President Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party even briefly considered the idea in the run-up to the 1912 election. But a lack of political will and a decisive electoral defeat 
abolished the prospect from the political agenda. Instead, in response to demands from growing industrial unions, individual companies increasingly began to offer various forms of employee insurance to guard against potential sickness and loss of pay. As such, the United States entered World War I in April 1918 with no federally organized system of health care for its 100 million citizens. 1929. The financial house of cards collapses and the overinflated stock market plunges into a Great Depression. A financial panic grips the world. For the majority, it means the interminable line outside factory gates, desperately hoping for a job that rarely comes. It means hunger and the march of the unemployed in the nation's capital. With acute domestic problems, America would now isolate herself more than ever from the international scene. It started in America, but practically overnight an economic blizzard swept the world. In Japan, France, Britain, always the unemployed, the soup kitchens, the grinding poverty, and the despair. In the years after the Great Depression, labor militancy and union leadership focused its demands specifically on addressing rampant unemployment. In March of 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was propelled into office on a mandate to take on big business, put an end to reckless speculation, and implement his New Deal agenda of sweeping social reforms. We must act. We must act quickly. And finally, in our progress towards a resumption of work, we require two safeguards against a return of the evils of the old order. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments. There must be an end to speculation with other people's money. And there must be provision for an adequate but sound currency. But while successfully implementing a comprehensive investment-led and union-backed spending plan to revitalize America's floundering economy, Roosevelt's new social democracy ultimately shied away from plans for universal health care. Throughout the 1930s, influential lobbying groups had begun to form on behalf of the burgeoning private healthcare industry. The American Medical Association, AMA, which had incorporated in 1897, became one of the first institutions to organise on behalf of health professionals. Within two years, its membership captured nearly half of the nation's physicians. Excluding black doctors and black medical students from its ranks, the AMA grew in both size and influence, and by the time of Roosevelt's election, had become a significant force in DC politics. But at the Chicago headquarters of the American Medical Association is the spokesman for the majority of its 110,000 doctor members, able publicist Dr. Morris Fishbein, who opposes any radical departure from long-established medical practice. The House of Delegates of the American Medical Association has repeatedly declared that it is willing to cooperate with the government or with any other authorized agency 
in securing a wider distribution of medical care. Everyone should have good medical service. But we insist that the practice of medicine is a doctor's problem. The doctor is the only one entitled by training, by experience, and by law to take care of the sick. Medicine is still a profession. It must never become a business or a trade, never the subservient tool of a governmental bureaucracy. Defending the stake of its members in the existing system of private care, the AMA attacked the idea of nationalised public health insurance as un-American socialised medicine, throwing nearly a million dollars each year into publicly defaming the concept. This smear campaign was so effective that by the time of FDR's famous Social Security Act in 1935, he was forced to drop his original proposal for publicly funded universal health care from his New Deal programme. Instead, new legislation aided the growing market for employment-based insurance. As medicine developed, hospital and physician costs began to rise, and new third-party insurers stepped in to a lucrative market. In 1929, a group of Dallas school teachers had signed a contract with Baylor University Hospital to create a unique program. Receiving up to 21 days of inpatient care a year for regular monthly payments of 50 cents. By 1937, 26 of these prepaid service plans, with more than 600,000 members, had formed across the country. The Blue Cross Network, which provided coverage for hospital services, and the Blue Shield Group, covering physician expenses, became the foremost examples of a growing system of third-party insurance. Without significant pressure from labour unions or a strong social movement, political fear of organised medicine dominated DC policymaking, setting a precedent that reforms could be dictated by the whims of a growing healthcare lobby. As the result of much intensive study into questions of social security, Sir William Beveridge is the recognised authority on present-day and post-war problems. Following upon the publication of his report, Sir William summarises the points of his plan. The security plan in my report has three sides to it. The report proposes, first, an all-in scheme of social insurance, providing for all citizens and their families all the cash benefits needed for security in return for a single weekly contribution by one insurance stamp. The benefits are to be adequate in amount and to last as long as the need lasts. The report proposes, second, a scheme of children's allowances to be paid both when the responsible parent is earning and when he is not earning. The report proposes third an all-in scheme of medical treatment of all kinds for all citizens. The national minimum is a peculiarly British idea. 
It means that no one is to fall below a certain standard. It leaves everyone free to spend his income above that standard as he will. It preserves the maximum of individual freedom and responsibility that is consistent with the abolition of want. That is the aim of my report as shortly as I can put it. I hope that when you've been able to study the report in detail, you'll like it, that it'll get adopted, and that so we shall take the first step to security with freedom and responsibility. That is what we all desire. At the height of World War II, British economist and liberal politician Sir William Beveridge drew upon the earlier work of health activists to set forth his vision for what post-war reconstruction might look like. The Beveridge Report proposed widespread reforms to the British system of social welfare, focusing in particular on an expansion of national insurance and the creation of a national health service, financed by the government through tax payments. While the public welfare state was taking place in the UK, however, in the US, the system of private welfare was rapidly expanding. With American entry into the war, a large section of the American workforce was diverted to military service, and businesses faced severe labor shortages. To prevent inflation, FDR signed an economic stabilization order, which listed tight caps on both prices and wages. In response, the private sector adapted, offering an array of employee benefits in lieu of wages to lure in prospective workers. These included paid vacations, on-site childcare, and increasingly comprehensive health care coverage. Certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines throughout the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. In 1944, Roosevelt outlined the right to adequate medical care 
and the right to achieve and enjoy good health in his Economic Bill of Rights. And in 1945, a proposal was tabled before Congress to introduce a national medical insurance program financed through Social Security payroll taxes. Enjoying the strong support of soon-to-be President Harold Truman, the so-called Wagner-Murray-Dingle Bill faced an unprecedented onslaught from the AMA. As the Cold War dawned, red-baiting became the norm and attacks increasingly focused on communist espionage at the highest level of government and a Soviet-inspired plot to socialize American medicine. The average American can do very little insofar as digging communist espionage agents out of our government is concerned. They, they, they must depend upon those of us whom they send down here uh, to man the watchtowers of the nation. The thing that the American people can do is to be vigilant day and night to make sure they don't have communists teaching the sons and daughters of America. Now I realize that the minute anyone tries to get a communist out of a college, out of a university, there will be raised the phony cry that you're interfering with academic freedom. I would like to emphasize that there is no academic freedom where a communist is concerned. Taking on the presidency after the death of FDR, Truman's election victory in 1948 gave him the mandate to push forward with what he termed his fair deal agenda. Once again, this program included national health care insurance, financed through Social Security payroll taxes, and once again, the AMA spent over a million dollars on anti-reform propaganda, filling television and radio slots. In the face of these vitriolic attacks, and in defense of his own anti-communism agenda, Truman dropped his plan for universal coverage. He would later call it the greatest disappointment of his presidency. Between 1940 and 1950, the share of U.S. citizens with employment-based health coverage jumped from 9.1% to over 50%. While the United Kingdom emerged from the Second World War with a fully formed and publicly funded National Health Service installed by the newly elected Labour government under Clement Attlee, in the U.S., the window of opportunity had been lost. The growing system of third-party insurance was now the undisputed primary provider of health care across the world's largest economy. Throughout the 1950s, the health insurance industry began to formalize its political influence. Those of us with deep convictions, AMA President James Forrestal observed in 1956, must do more than vote. That same year, insurers established an official lobbying arm, the Health Insurance Association of America, which increasingly championed a lucrative line of group-based private coverage and the light hand of state regulation. It wasn't until the election of JFK's Democratic administration in 1961 that the mere idea of universal health care once again broke into the political discourse. 
in England is entirely different. In England, the entire cost of medicine for people of all ages, all of it, doctors, the choice of doctors, hospitals, from the time you're born to the time you die, are included in a government program. But what we're talking about is entirely different. And I hope that while he's here, he and Dr. Spock and others who have joined us will come to see what we're trying to do. The fact of the matter is that what we are now talking about doing, most of the countries of Europe did years ago. The British did it 30 years ago. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. And then those who say that this should be left to private effort. In those hospitals in New Jersey where the doctors said they wouldn't treat anyone who paid their hospital bills through Social Security, those hospitals and every other new hospital, the American people, all of us, contribute one half, one or two thirds for every new hospital in the national government. We pay 55% of all the research done. We help young men become doctors. We are concerned with the progress of this country. And those who say that what we are now talking about spoils our great pioneer heritage should remember that the West was settled with two great actions by the national government. One, in President Lincoln's administration, when he gave a homestead to everyone who went West, and in 1862, he set aside government property to build our land-grant colleges. This cooperation between an alert and progressive citizenry and a progressive government is what has made this country great, and we shall continue as long as we have the opportunity to do so. Known as Medicare, Kennedy proposed a national health insurance program which would specifically cover people over the age of 65. Like previous initiatives to expand state-subsidised health coverage, the AMA, who viewed government intervention as an existential threat to the for-profit healthcare industry, launched another crusading PR campaign against the proposed reforms. Physician, epidemiologist and public health expert Dr. Abdul El-Sayed tells us more. During World War II, the then relatively small insurance industry um, had taken hold and insurance industry plus doctors uh, worried that um, collectivizing healthcare, uh, as you all did in the UK, uh, would end up destroying um, their bottom line. And so uh, they rallied against it. Um, the term socialized medicine was used as a bugaboo. Uh, there's, there's some famous clips of a young Ronald Reagan uh, railing against socialized medicine uh, in the 60s before he was ever elected president. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. Now, the American people, if you put it to them about socialized medicine and gave them a chance to choose, would unhesitatingly vote against it. We had an example of this under the Truman administration. It was proposed that we have a compulsory health insurance program for all people in the United States, and of course, the American people unhesitatingly rejected this. Um, and scared a lot of folks away. In fact, a lot of modern uh, campaign tactics using this mass advertising 
uh, was developed by the AMA in the advent of pushing against um, efforts to collectivize healthcare. And so we've got a long history uh, of efforts to try and collectivize um, that have been met with large corporations, um, scaring people into what might happen and using some of our country's worst uh, uh, worst history uh, against um, our best potential future. After JFK's assassination in 1963, major healthcare reform was taken on as a central pillar by the new president, Lyndon B. Johnson. In 1965, Johnson's administration succeeded where his predecessor had failed and passed amendments to Roosevelt's Social Security Act, which created Medicare. The Harry S. Truman Library at Independence, Missouri, is the scene of an historic event. President and Mrs. Johnson and Vice President Humphrey arrive for ceremonies that will make the Medicare bill a part of Social Security coverage. Mr. Johnson chose to sign the bill here as a tribute to former President Truman. The former president campaigned for Medicare 20 years ago, but it took two decades for his proposal to become law. The new bill expands the 30-year-old Social Security program to provide hospital care, nursing home care, home nursing service, and outpatient treatment for those over 65. Medicare will become law on July 1st, 1966, and for Mr. Truman, an historic souvenir from the president. This legislation had an immediate impact. Medicare provided public insurance for those over the age of 65, where prior to the act, only 50% of the elderly population had hospital insurance. By 1970, 96% of people eligible for the scheme had coverage. Also included as an amendment to the legislation was Medicaid, a new program which aimed to cover the medical costs for the poor and disabled. Unlike Medicare, which is federally funded and administered, Medicaid was created as a joint federal-state program in which states receive partial federal support in covering the costs for eligible recipients. Also in contrast to Medicare, which entitled every person over the age of 65 to coverage, Medicaid was a means-tested program whose eligibility requirements and benefits packages were to be determined by particular states. While its neighbour to the north, Canada, instituted a comprehensive national insurance programme in 1966, the US's newly cherished Medicare system still left a vast percentage without access to affordable care. As liberal politicians and organisations celebrated the reforms, radical activists such as the Black Panther Party called out the remaining coverage gaps which exposed the racial and class divisions at the heart of American society. In that area where you have a high infant mortality rate, where you have uh, lead poisoning, where you have inadequate medical service, we saw, we saw the basic need for free medical service and we worked hard and worked over long periods of time in order to make that a reality. Now, up to this day in the black community, you have doctors there who are more concerned with private wealth rather than public health. The concept behind the medical center is that we would take the profits out of the medical profession. Our medical center is a direct result of the basic need in the black community for free medical service. 
The Black Panthers maintained that full social equality would never be possible under a system that treated healthcare as a commodity and excluded those it could not exploit for profit. In the late 1960s, in cities such as Chicago, the Black Panthers set up health clinics to deal with the egregious lack of healthcare access in poor black communities. In 1971, as an inflation crisis led the Nixon administration to impose ways and price controls around the country, a new political window opened to complete the push toward a universal health care system. Under the leadership of the Republican president and a Democratic-controlled legislature, the major parties jostled to convince the electorate of their preferred vision for the future of American health care. President Nixon has said that this will be health year, the year to tackle what he's called the massive crisis of spiraling costs and overstrained medical resources. Today, the president pitted a low-key, low-budget plan to expand private insurance coverage against the more drastic proposals in Congress paced by the labor-supported Kennedy plan for cradle-to-grave federal health insurance for all Americans. I am proposing today a new national health strategy. It helps more people pay for care but it also expands the supply of health services and makes them more efficient. Leading the health care committee in the Senate, Democrat Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts championed a new vision of single-payer health care. By contrast, the Kennedy plan would cover an estimated 70% of health expenses through a system that would cost the government up to $60 billion, but including a lot of what patients are now paying. The Kennedy bill is straight national health insurance, financed by Social Security and general taxes, with no cost sharing, no cutoff point for the beneficiaries, bypassing private insurance companies operating through a presidentially appointed health security board. And so the line is being drawn between repairs on the present health system and a new federal health system. Under this scheme, Kennedy sought to offer a single government-funded national health insurance program as a universal alternative to the expensive and insufficient private system. Facing both partisan and internal party disputes, Kennedy ultimately endorsed more moderate legislation, which would have retained the private health insurance industry whilst providing a public option for those without coverage. But a deal with Nixon was never reached, due in part to opposition from the AMA and the president's resignation after the Watergate scandal. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Ronald Reagan's election to the presidency in 1980 marked a sharp turn of mainstream politics toward the neoliberal economics of Milton Freeman and the Chicago School. His administration proceeded to go to war on big government, cutting entitlement spending and deregulating the executive state. Reagan proposed cuts to Medicaid spending and reforms to Medicare, and as a bipartisan neoliberal consensus gripped both major parties, the vision for universal health care was abolished from the political agenda. 
1980 was the last year that national health insurance was included in the official Democratic Party platform. Outside the Washington bubble, however, a growing movement across the country spawned in the 1980s against this establishment consensus. Maybe the worst example of privatization is our healthcare system. Here the conflict between the common good and the private interest affects our very health. No nation in the world spends as much money on health as we do. Yet among industrialized countries, only South Africa and we do not guarantee health care for everybody. We have the best technology. We have sufficient doctors, hospitals, machines, and equipment. We spend enough money, but we lack the basic commitment to build a health care system to serve all the people. Terry Takewell, the construction worker, age 21, diabetic, uninsured. An ambulance took him to private hospital in Somerville, Tennessee. He was in an acute diabetic attack. He had no insurance. When the administrator found out he had no insurance, he picked him up and carried him out to the parking lot. Takewell made his way home somehow and died that night. The hospital was exonerated of wrongdoing with standard operating procedure. In Canada, they have a national health program that covers everyone. When you're in a hospital in Canada, the first question you are asked is what is wrong? In America, the first question must be what is your insurance? And that is not right. In 1988, Jesse Jackson returned to the campaign trail in a second bid for the presidency. Traversing the country to build his famous Rainbow Coalition, Jackson's campaign pushed for a range of universal policy. His proposed national health program highlighted the absurd economic inequality in the United States, criticizing the greed of the private insurance industry, and setting out a strong moral argument for the universal provision of publicly funded health care as a human right. Jackson came close to winning the Democratic nomination gathering 40% of the delegates at the 88 convention on a radical platform which effectively repudiated the more centrist wing of the Democratic Party, represented by Michael Dukakis and rising National Party stars Bill Clinton and Al Gore. The surprising momentum that Jackson's campaign was able to garner marked a revival in the movement for universal health care and firmly demonstrated that comprehensive social welfare policies still had a broad mass of popular support, even in an era when both political parties were increasingly preaching fiscal austerity and an end to big government. Following the neglect of the Reagan and Bush presidencies, millions of Americans remained without any health insurance whatsoever. And during the period from 1978 to 1990, the number of uninsured grew by 14 million people each year to a total of 40 million Americans. Government just isn't working for the hardworking families of America. We need fundamental change, not more of the same. We need more than vague promises, too. That's why I've offered a plan, a real plan, to get our economy moving again, invest in our people with education and job training, rebuild America, and create 8 million new jobs. 
a plan to take on the big insurance companies and drug companies to control health costs and ensure quality, affordable health care for every American. No more tax breaks to corporations for moving our jobs overseas, but real incentives to invest here at home and create jobs for our people. We're going to ask the rich to pay their fair share. If you make more than $200,000, you'll pay a little more so the rest of America can finally get a break. It's a plan that puts government back on your side for a change. Take a look at the plan. Let me know what you think. We won't fix all our problems overnight, but together we can make America work again. During the 1992 presidential campaign, the Democratic Arkansas governor, Bill Clinton, harnessed the popularity of Jackson's 1988 platform and rhetorically advocated in favour of universal health care. Once elected, however, the actual substance of his health care policy drastically differed from the demands of activists outside the halls of power. Upon entering the Oval Office, President Clinton established a health care task force, appointing his wife, then First Lady Hillary Clinton, to lead the project. Instead of proposing a single-payer program, the administration followed in the incrementalist approach of its predecessors, advocating for a managed marketplace which would expand the existing employment-based health insurance system. The plan included a compulsory mandate for employers to provide insurance to cover all employees, as well as subsidies to the unemployed or those in precarious work. Even though Clinton's proposals were modest in comparison to many of his Democratic predecessors, it was still met with an unprecedented negative PR campaign from the Health Insurance Association of America who poured $14 million into ads to sway public opinion. I don't get it. Congress isn't passing the health care reform America wants. Problem is, they don't get it. We've been clear about the reforms we want. Private health insurance we can all have even if we've been sick. Coverage we can keep even if we change or lose our jobs. Coverage we can afford. Now why can't Congress write a law like that? That's a very good question, like all the questions Harry and Louise have been asking over the past year. But it seems like some in Congress aren't listening. I'm Bill Gratison, president of the Health Insurance Association of America, the sponsor of Harry and Louise. Before taking this job, I served 18 years as a member of Congress from Ohio. I was the ranking member of the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, so I know a little about health care and the Congress. Bill, what is this new Medicare program? Is that for everyone? It's called Medicare Part C, and it's a surprise to most Americans that the Congress would even think of creating a huge new entitlement program like this. The Heritage Foundation and other conservative think tanks also mounted a PR blitz of ads, newspaper editorials, and congressional memos, condemning Clinton's plan as a government overreach. Without a strong popular movement to counter the onslaught of negative media, pushed from corporate health interests, the reform was ultimately defeated in only one year, as the administration failed to build sufficient support to even get a floor vote in either chamber of Congress. As Clinton's legislative priority was overwhelmingly defeated, structural healthcare reform remained off Washington's agenda for another two decades. And by the dawn of the new millennium, nearly one in seven Americans had no health care coverage whatsoever. Health care, it ain't right. 
Healthcare sh shouldn't be some kind of either-or trade-off where our seniors get left out in the cold. It ain't right. I think every single American has a right to affordable, accessible health care. So we can strengthen Medicare by eliminating wasteful subsidies to big HMOs in Medicare, making sure seniors can access home-based care, letting Medicare negotiate with drug companies for cheaper prices on their drugs. That's the kind of change we need. So in the end, Senator McCain can keep trying to attack me and distract you, but it's not going to work. Not this time. Not now. Because while John McCain thinks this campaign's all about me, the truth is the campaign's about you. It's about your job. During the 2008 presidential campaign, health care reform was at the top of the country's domestic concerns. 116 million people, more than a third of the population, still remained either uninsured or underinsured. Barack Obama campaigned on a promise to regulate the excesses of the private health care market and create an alternative, affordable public insurance plan known as the public option. Following his historic rise to the presidency, Democrats looked poised to finally pass the widest health care reform since 1965, wielding dominance of the House and a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Once the negotiating began, however, Obama quickly retreated from his campaign pledge, dropping the public option due to pressure from corporate-friendly advisors and conservative members of the Democratic caucus. The bill I'm signing will set in motion reforms that generations of Americans have fought for and marched for and hungered to see. It'll take four years to implement fully many of these reforms because we need to implement them responsibly. We need to get this right. But a host of desperately needed reforms will take effect right away. This year. This year, we'll start offering tax credits to about 4 million small businessmen and women to help them cover the cost of insurance for their employees. That happens this year. Obama's Affordable Care Act, known colloquially as Obamacare, consists of two major coverage expansion programs. Firstly, it created an online marketplace on which consumers could easily compare subsidized private insurance programs. Under this new system of managed competition, Americans were mandated to purchase a private health insurance plan the choice of which was simplified into four ranked tiers, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum, based on quality and expense. Hello, everybody. I want to talk with you about a new consumer website, healthcare.gov. It's a good resource for understanding the new law, and it offers a few simple tools to help you take your healthcare into your own hands. For the first time ever, you can see all your insurance options, public and private, in one place. Let me show you how it works. Now, I have pretty good health care these days, but 
Let's roll back the clock to when Michelle and I were just getting started in Chicago. From the home page, I choose my state. Then answer a few more questions. Based on my choices, the system has returned options. The first points out that I may be eligible for health insurance that comes with a job, either my own or my spouse's. The second option is to explore the market for individual insurance options in my area. So let's try that. I'll plug in my Chicago zip code, and it shows me all available private plans. This fall, there will be even more details, like pricing information, to help you better compare your options. The page also shows you information about insurance markets in your state and how it will improve as we continue to implement the law. You'll also find information on new benefits and consumer protections. That's why we passed this reform, to put Americans in control of their health care. The other major addition in the original ACA was Medicaid expansion. In the initial passage of the bill, Medicaid was expanded in all states for those with incomes up to 133% of the federal poverty level. Just two years later, the Supreme Court struck down this provision, ruling that individual states should have the freedom to opt out of Medicaid expansion. From what I can see in this ruling, the court has struck down that third part of the decision, that is forcing the states to expand their Medicaid program. But this is not very simple. The way I read this, the court is leaving open to the states to come back and opt in to the Medicaid expansion at their discretion. So in other words, as I read this ruling right now, the majority on the court is saying that when Congress forced all of the states to expand their Medicaid program, let's remember, this is a shared expense. 26 states had come into court saying it's not fair and not within the federal government's purview to make us expand Medicaid when we're paying for part of it. Chief Justice Roberts seems to be agreeing with that, but as part of the majority opinion here, which is cobbled together with the liberal side of the court, they're also saying that if states want to opt in to the Medicaid expansion, that's their choice. Overall, though, the Medicaid expansion is unconstitutional according to this ruling. Ultimately, Obamacare did succeed in dramatically expanding affordable health care in the United States. It allowed children to remain on their parents' insurance until the age of 26, it compelled insurers to offer plans to those with pre-existing medical conditions, and it ensured that birth control would be free of charge. But even as the number of uninsured people dropped from around 44 million to less than 27 million by the end of Obama's tenure, many today regard the ACA as a rare missed opportunity to actually legislate for a simple system of universal health care. And, you know, it's been a missed opportunity in large part because still 10% of our country is without health care. And the median American is finding it harder and harder to afford health care at all. You know, one of, the, one of the things that a lot of folks don't understand unless you're in the U.S. context um, is how insurance companies often work. So you pay a premium, which is, you know, biweekly or monthly fee to have insurance coverage. And then to get access to the insurance you already paid for, you have to pay at the point of care if you're going uh, to an outpatient uh, service. That's called a copay. And then um, if something bad were to happen and you had to get hospitalized, the insurance doesn't actually kick in until you pay what's called a deductible, which can be $5,000, $10,000 out of pocket to even get to the services you already paid for in your insurance. 
And those costs have gone sky high because the insurance corporations want, in effect, to make money off of you. And um, they found that the best way to do that is to just pass healthcare costs back onto the consumer on the back end when they don't know that it's going to hit them. And the, the hard part about this is that, you know, the operative word in insurance is sure. And the idea is that it's there for you when you need it. Um, and for too many Americans, it's not. And it's just a failure of this idea that markets can solve healthcare problems. They can't. Um, and we need to collectivize. That's Medicare for all in America. Count me in as one of those people who believes that health care is a right, not a privilege. Count me in as somebody who believes there is something very wrong when the United States of America is the only major country on earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right. Yes, the Affordable Care Act has made progress. A lot more people have insurance today than they used to. But 29 million Americans still have zero health insurance, and many of you are underinsured with high deductibles and high co-payments. In my view, we must move forward toward a Medicare for all single-payer program. In April 2015, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders officially entered into a long-shot bid for the presidency, going up against party establishment favourite former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Sanders' campaign called out America's egregious levels of wealth inequality and a broken political system tied to the whims of corporate lobbyists. Articulating a structural and moral critique of the US private healthcare industry, Sanders' campaign took inspiration from the outsider popularity of Jesse Jackson back in the 1980s. Lawrence Hamm, was the New Jersey co-chair of both Jesse Jackson's 88 campaign and Sanders in 2016. This liberal wing of the, of the Democratic Party pushes forward when it has the strength to do so. And it had the strength to do so in 1988. In fact, 1984, Jesse Jackson ran twice. He ran in 1984, he ran on 1988. His, his platform was very much uh, in the vein of, I won't say identical to, but in the vein of Bernie Sanders' platform of 2016. And so again, whereas you had that pushing forward of the, the liberal wing in the 1980s, and then it fell back, it pushed forward again in 2016 with Bernie Sanders, only this time, I would say not just the liberal elements of the Democratic Party, but progressive elements because Sanders' platform was qualitatively different uh, than previous platforms of insurgent candidates within the Democratic Party. And, and I guess the market feature, the, the place where you would start would be Medicare for all. Even in the liberal platforms that have been put before by other candidates, they did not call for the complete overhaul of the healthcare system. 
but Sanders did in 2016. And Bernie Sanders served a very important purpose with his campaign of 2016 and his partial campaign of 2020. He showed demonstrably that there are large numbers of people, very large numbers of people in the United States that will support a progressive platform. They will support Medicare for all, doubling the minimum wage, abolishing student debt, free college, ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Green New Deal, probably most 50% plus of the country is ready for that and want that. It's, they're really being held back by the leadership of the party, which is still in the hands of the, the corporate Democrats and the establishment Democrats. Sanders' Medicare for All plan proposed a single-payer national health insurance program in the vein of Canada, which would be free at the point of service and eliminate the existing system of private health insurance. Under these plans, all premiums, deductibles and copays would be abolished. Medicare's remit would be expanded and an annual cap of $200 would be implemented per person on prescription drugs. Every US resident, including undocumented immigrants, would be eligible for coverage. Medicare for All is a single-payer health care program where the government becomes uh, all of our insurer. And that has a number of benefits. Number one, it instantly covers everybody. Number two, it eliminates a lot of the overhead costs uh, that come with private insurance, which include, you know, huge CEO pay, uh, marketing costs, and then the overhead that, that exists both among the insurance industry and the healthcare industry, uh, the hospitals and doctors uh, from whom you actually get care, where they all have to know how to interface with each other. Every insurer has a different set of forms, et cetera, which means that the, the, the overall overhead cost of healthcare, even on the provider side, is extremely high. Um, so the costs go down. Um, you know, Medicare's overhead right now is about 2 to 3%, whereas private insurance overhead is about 15%. And so you're reducing the cost right there. But there's a more powerful driver of reductions in cost, which is that if you have one buyer of healthcare, which is what the government becomes under Medicare for all, uh, it becomes what's called a monopsony. Now, everybody knows what a monopoly is, which is where you have one seller of a good. A monopsony is when you have one buyer of a good, and that buyer has a similar um, uh, price uh, setting capacity, just like a monopoly does. And if the government is buying healthcare on all behalf, it can negotiate down the cost of healthcare, the cost of pharmaceuticals, uh, and bring down the cost for everybody. And then um, that allows us to add benefits that even traditional Medicare, which is that uh, program for people over 65, doesn't cover. Things like mental health and dental services, um, long-term care, auditory and vision services, uh, which ought to be covered. This is different from the UK system. The UK is a single provider system where the government both is your insurer and your provider of healthcare. You go to an NHS hospital and see an NHS doctor. In Medicare for all, you'd be seeing a private doctor at a private hospital, but you'd be paid for uh, and covered by the government that is your insurer. It's a lot more similar to what they have in Canada. Although Sanders failed in his bid for the Democratic nomination, he outperformed expectations, gathering 43% of the overall primary vote. In just several years, a popular movement for universal healthcare was revitalised in the United States. Outside of Washington, 
polling indicated that 70% of registered voters supported Medicare for All. In DC, politicians began signing on to Sanders' plan. Under Sanders' legislation, all children under 18 and all adults 55 and older would qualify for Medicare during the program's first year. The remainder of adults would be phased in over four years until everyone is covered by Medicare. Fifteen senators have so far signed on as co-sponsors, including New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, California Senator Kamala Harris. This is Senator Sanders speaking at the People's Summit in Chicago in July. Think back five years ago. There was, at that point, widespread belief that the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, was about as far as we could go as a nation in health care. That's about it. Passed Obamacare, can't do any more. Today, as you know, that view is radically changing. Nurses, thank you for your help on this. With powerful national labor unions, such as National Nurses United, endorsing Sanders' proposal, Prospective Democratic candidates entered the 2020 cycle with comprehensive healthcare reform as a central issue. Following the Republican 2017 tax cut, which repealed the individual mandate and narrowly failed to repeal the system of Obamacare in its entirety, many Democrats tapped into the popular desire to protect and expand healthcare coverage. On healthcare, there's a choice. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All would completely eliminate private insurance, forcing 150 million Americans off their current plans. Over 20 million seniors on Medicare Advantage. Pete Buttigieg has a better way to lower costs and cover everyone. Medicare for all who want it. Everyone gets access to Medicare if they choose. But if you like your private plan, you can keep it instead of polarization. Progress. I'm Pete Buttigieg and I approve this message. Rhetorically supporting a Medicare for All program, many of the candidates actually proposed watered-down versions of Sanders' original vision, often retaining a substantial role for the influential private insurance industry. Sanders himself was attacked from the right, both by his competitors and by the liberal media, who criticised his proposals as radical and too expensive, oppressive for its lack of consumer choice, an anti-union on the basis that workers would be displaced from their existing insurance. Despite the term's popularity on the Democratic debate stage, former Vice President and now nominee Joe Biden refuses to endorse a Medicare for All plan, instead outlining separate proposals to protect and build on Obamacare. It was great being part of the first Democratic debate in Miami. The question was asked whether we support eliminating private health insurance some said yes, I said absolutely not. I believe we have to protect and build on Obamacare. That's why I proposed adding a public option to Obamacare as the best way to lower costs and cover everyone. I understand the appeal of Medicare for all, but folks supporting it should be clear that it means getting rid of Obamacare. And I'm not for that. Like Obama's original proposal for the Affordable Care Act, Biden's plan promises to create a new option for public health insurance. The public option would allow people to purchase what he terms a Medicare-like plan on the healthcare exchange at reduced prices. 
the public option would also be available, premium-free, to all those eligible for the Medicaid expansion, even those in states that chose to opt out of expansion under the ACA. Biden has also pledged to increase the value of tax credits and use subsidies to lower premiums on private plans, ensuring no one pays more than 8.5% of their income on insurance. But whilst these proposals do mark a substantial advance in the quest towards universal coverage, they do not match the universal scope of a Medicare for All plan, through which healthcare is guaranteed to all and free at the point of use. By tiptoeing around the profits of the private sector, many healthcare activists argue that Biden's healthcare plan shies away from the fundamental question at the heart of the American healthcare system. Should healthcare be a commodity to be bought and sold as a conduit of exchange, or a right to all, regardless of income? As Dr. Abdul El Sayed explains, this sense of universality is integral to building a functional public health system fit for the 21st century. Um, universality is critical, right? Because if you want a single-tiered system that truly does provide equitable access to healthcare for everybody, um, you can't c- create two tiers. What Medicare for quote-unquote all who want it is, is a fancy um, political way of framing what's called a public option, where the government just has an insurance pr- plan that you can buy into. The problem with this is that um, it doesn't hold the private providers at bay. Um, by in effect eliminating them, like 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 Medicare for all would the, the private um, insurers, excuse me, uh, and because it doesn't hold the private insurers at bay, um, it allows them to continue to create a lot of the misincentives in the system um, that are locking people out of the system and keeping healthcare costs too high. Now, how do we get this? Well, look, we know that the industry has a huge amount of money, and that money is going to be used to advertise against Medicare for all, as it has in the past. Uh, just like um, the AMA, the American Medical Association, and the the health insurance providers did uh, to destroy efforts to get universal health insurance uh, in the post-World War II era, like we already talked about. The reason that so many Medicare for All supporters support Bernie Sanders is because he recognizes it's not just about the policy, it's about the politics that are going to get this done. And that means bringing organizing power uh, to bear against the advertising power uh, of the industry. Throughout this Our Voices documentary, we've seen how the movement for universal healthcare has consistently risen and fallen through the 20th century. Multiple attempts have been made, both by politicians and movements, to guarantee healthcare to all Americans as a human right. But whether it's Roosevelt's New Deal in the 30s or Ted Kennedy's campaign, in the early 70s, the movement for guaranteed care has repeatedly been met with a wall of opposition from both the healthcare industry and its many benefactors. With the election of Ronald Reagan and the neoliberal turn in the 1980s, the notion of universal healthcare was shut out of mainstream political debate in Washington for almost 30 years. And when Obama finally brought it to the forefront, off the back of a devastating recession in 2008. His conservative concessions ultimately crippled the chances for universal expansion. With 8.5 million cases and over 225,000 deaths, 
the United States has long since become the epicentre of the coronavirus pandemic worldwide. A nation with 87 million uninsured or underinsured at the start of the crisis has seen a further 12 million kicked off their coverage as the worst economic decline on record takes hold. We are now only a week away from an era-defining general election, which, amongst other things, will determine the future of healthcare for the American people. As Donald Trump and the Republican Party continue to undermine the existing system of health security, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party are intent on protecting and expanding affordable care. If elected, Joe Biden's plan, with its public option, is predicted to expand coverage to 97% of Americans in what would be the most comprehensive healthcare reform since the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. Outside of Washington, however, with COVID-19 raging across the country and Congress stalling over a much-needed stimulus package, Medicare for All has rapidly become one of the most popular policies across the United States. Progressive politicians, supported by a burgeoning popular movement on the streets, continue to call for healthcare, free at the point of service, as a human right. If Biden wins on November 3rd, a political window will once again open up to redefine the future of healthcare in the United States. Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review. Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.